There are people that seem to be hell-bent on being hell-bound. They've made choices. And I tell people, your choices are what put you here. Pastor Wayne Whiteside has ministered to 400 death row inmates in multiple states. He's witnessed 30 executions, and he has been present in the death chamber for one. This truly will be a episode that's a journey into darkness. Pastor? It's good to be with you. I think it's probably fair to say that you have seen some Old Testament evil. I certainly have. I certainly have. I've seen the very worst that humans can offer to other humans, and I do not have a Pollyanna view of humans. Uh, no, absolutely not. And the view you have from your experience in this? I don't know where to draw the line between mental illness and evil. I do believe that I've met many people who are not mentally ill. They are simply evil. How did you get into this? This started, uh, what, back when you were in in college? 20 years old, received a call from a mother a childhood friend was arrested for capital murder in northeast Texas. She asked me to go see her son, and I said, yes, ma'am, I will. And then I thought, what have I done? So I called the chief deputy, really nice man, walked me through the process, and I visited this man, and then every Wednesday following, I visited, and then I went from one to two to three and then four inmates in Bible study, and then Doors have opened. I never knocked a door open. I never aspired to do this. Doors have simply opened. And this was somebody you knew from childhood. It is. And his reaction when you walked in to see him? He was surprised. He's, this is a guy that's uh, bitter. He's not a success story. He is uh, 60 years old now and has spent well over half his life in a penitentiary of some sort, federal. Uh, he's, he's, he's not a nice guy. And what was he in for? Well, it was a contract killing. The, originally, he uh, took a man from a bar. They had gotten him drunk. He had promised him that you can be with my wife. They went to his home, and the man fell asleep on the sofa, and then he put a bullet in the top of his head and was not able to, to get the body. This man weighs about 110 pounds, and so he called, got a friend. They hid the body. And then the friend said, well, you know, he kills this guy. I'm the only one who knows about it. He may kill me. And so he ran to law enforcement and he was arrested for capital murder. Uh, when we were talking earlier, you said when you first saw him at the, uh, at the county jail, he's the tough guy. He had the tough guy exterior on. But then he opened up. Well, he initially told me, uh, well, he, he was the tough guy. I walked off, actually, just, uh, you know, I'm done. You don't want your help. And so he beat on the glass, and I came back, and he said, listen, I'm scared. I don't know what's next. But he never allowed that persona with other inmates or with the officers. He did confide in me, and he was scared, very scared. But what was his persona behind bars with the rest of the well, inmates? Well, he, he's like Charles Manson-like. He's a, he's a small man, and he controlled the other inmates. Uh, I had a Bible study, and one was sleeping, and he, he went to him and said, you're going to come out. You're not going to disrespect my minister friend, and you're going to be a part of this Bible study. And if you if you don't, I'll deal with you later. And the man came out of his cell. He, you know, audience under command. You know, I've saw that in my experience in the prison system. The 
You would think they were the least likely tough guys to be feared, but these small, wiry men would just strike fear in enormous-sized inmates. What What is it that the other inmates see? I don't know. I was in Arkansas once, and this little guy had landed, and he, his authority was challenged. And he just walked up to the guy, head-butted him in his midsection, and this guy's lumped over, so to speak. He head-butted him, just knocked all his top teeth out and said, now— are there any questions? And so I don't know. He backed it up. Little guy, but he backed it up. Take me from the county jail in East Texas to then how do you start visiting prisons? Where does this begin? Well, you know, in ministry, you'll you'll have someone. It's usually a mother's fault. It's always a mother who calls her grandmother. And I still hadn't learned how to say no to them. You know, I say yes and think, what am I doing? Um, I was preaching a homecoming at a church. And a lady walked up to me, and she said, my best friend's son is on death row. Well, she gave me a number, and I looked at that number. It was not a Texas death row number. It was in Arkansas. And I thought, oh, my goodness. So I started corresponding with him. And I thought, you know, I looked on the map, and it's closer to me to Arkansas than it is to uh, Louisiana State Prison, which is in Angola for me, resident of uh, Louisiana. So uh, I called the chaplain. And the chaplain said, yeah, yeah, come on up. I've got, some, I've got something I want you to do. And so I sort of got a, a, a free day or, or took a day from him. I did his work for him. So I did death notices. He gave me a little office. And after I did what he wanted me to do, he would let me go to death row. But he took me back that day after we talked, I walked up to the guy's cell. Here's the guy. It's, it's a hot climate. And he's standing in his boxers. And he says, who are you? I said, I'm Brother Whiteside. He said, how did you get in this place? I said, well, I'm not really sure. And so any, anyway, it started speaking to some of, the, some of the other inmates. It's um, open face, not behind the solid door, the old style. And so communicated, shook hands with some of them. And then the chaplain said, well, when are you coming next? And so I started going. And there were 42 at that time, and I, I got to know them all. The Muslims spoke to me. Uh, I don't defer to anyone. I go and I speak, and I, if you tell me to get out of the way, I'm fine with that, but I'm going to talk to you. And so I built I built relationships with all of them. They all didn't come to the Lord. They didn't change their lives, but we did make connections. I, you see, I feel like if you build a bridge into someone's life, you've given them the opportunity. The bridge is there if they need to or decide they want to, they can cross that bridge. And so we build a bridge, and it's not up to me. As I told you before, I'm a paper man. There's the master editor. When I was a child or a high schooler, I had a paper route for a couple of years, and it was a rural route. And I would throw the paper in someone's yard. Some of them were eager to get it. They were out there at 3, 4 in the morning waiting for the paper. Some of them paid the bill, and the papers just piled up in the driveway. They drove over them, and they ignored them. Well, these inmates, uh, you know, we're doing a show here. It's not unlike a fishing show. You know, we're going to talk about the cast that landed people. But uh, this is a period of 39 years of ministry. Who knows really who has converted to Christ? I don't know anyone's heart. Some of these guys take me for a ride, and they play games with me, and I'm fully aware of that. Sometimes I catch them, and I, I call them on it and just say, look, guy, I have been listening to lies longer than you've been on the planet. Either quit 
or become a better liar. And I hold them accountable, and it's all good. I, I enjoy what I'm doing. I never aspire to it. I've, I've, I've had a speeding ticket, I think, 22 years ago. So you have no illusions that you're, in many cases, dealing with psychopaths or people that want to manipulate you. You're not gullible. But there is an image of some uh, chaplains in prisons or ministers that are gullible. It's because they are gullible. There, there are that are take, they are taken for a ride, so to speak. I, I'll give you an example. You're not supposed to give a home address. We had a gentleman that went to the prison, a particular prison, every Tuesday. If you write them, you're supposed to use a post office box. He gave his home address. Well, while he's on the inside, he's already told him wife's not home. She works out of the home. He's at the prison on a Tuesday. His wife is working, and his friends on the outside clean his house out. And uh, they just drive up in a nondescript van. It looks like a, a working van. They take everything. That's how that happened. To do this for so long, and it is a, I've been in death row, not like you, but it's dark place. And was there a call from the ministry to do it? Because there would be people say, hey, why waste your time? These are lost causes. Well, there's a call for duty. And there, you know, there's a, there's a level of adventure here. It's a crazy thing. My wife will tell you that I, uh, I'm, I'm eager to go because I don't know what's going to happen. I've seen things happen in inmates. I've seen things happen in officers. The lady officer is a good friend of mine. She wasn't really wanting to talk to me, and someone know it, so she slid up next to me. She said, uh, could you pray for me? My husband uh, has left me. I don't want this marriage to dissolve. Would you pray for me? And to this day, we're good friends, and the marriage has come back together. My, I didn't counsel with them. I prayed. And then I meet the family. You know, the family of these uh, inmates, many of them are decent taxpayers, they're churchgoers. They don't know why their children went bad. I'm thinking of a family right now raised two really good kids. One is an accountant, the other's in ministry, and then there's the third one. And they say, you know, we raised him the same way. And what happened? They come to prison, they're ashamed to be there, they're ashamed in their community, and they want to go and just kind of run, run up under the radar. And so I talk to them. I can see that shame if I'm walking down the hall and, you know, I'll just try to address them and say, you're a family member here. You don't, you know, they don't belong. They're not in a, in a uniform. And yeah, they are grudgingly say yes and exchange phone numbers sometimes. And I've been friends with some of these family members for 20 plus years. Up until he died a few years ago, I had a man that called me at nine o'clock every Thursday evening. His son was on death row. He was ashamed of it. He was a lonely old man with a lot of health problems, and we just talked. We talked about life. We talked about his work. We talked about his golden gloves boxing, you know, in the Army and the military, and we just talked. And uh, he told me one day, I guess this is a compliment, he said, you know, I don't like preachers. He said, but I like you. And he joked. He said, you must not be much of a preacher. Well, you, like people that listen to this podcast, have to wonder is it nature or nurture or some of both? And when you do see these families where you've got two children, pillars of the community, and then one is the worse than the black sheep. I walk away confused about that. And I, I finally, I've dealt with it in my mind that that's above my pay scale. Mm -hmm. You know, there's mental illness and there is just evil. I don't know where the line is drawn. I do know that some of the inmates I deal with are mentally ill. I'm not making an excuse for them. I think they should be 
held somehow accountable. And then I've met more than a few that are just evil. There's no other explaining it. Again, I go back to those gullible ministers that say we're going to find something good in them, and they don't. Well, you and I confronted evil in uh, uh, on death row with Doug Fellman. He was a mass spree killer here. He uh, was a graduate of SMU, upscale school in finance. You thought you know had it going, but behind in the when I met with him, well, he threatened to kill me and the guards with me, and uh, and you know he said. You're not going to understand this. And he was right. I, there was no rationality to it. What was your experience with him? Doug Feldman, I tried to help him. No one liked him. There, not one inmate liked him. Not one officer liked him. And he made that. He made that for himself. I got him to come out in the visitation room. I said, do you want something to eat? I got him a Dr. Pepper and a sandwich. And uh, he was cordial enough. We began. He drank the Dr. Pepper. He ate the sandwich, and then he turned and hit, you know, hit on the glass or the, the back netting and told the officer, I'm done. And he smirked at me, just sort of like, I beat you. You fed me. You got nothing out of this. I didn't talk to you. I beat you. I went a second time. A few months later, I did the same thing. He did the same thing. Uh, it was a game with him. Very acidic, bitter man. But he could turn it on and turn it off. I've, I've seen some of the interviews he's done with others. He's like a businessman in North Louisiana that I knew. Uh, he's charming when he wants to be, but when he flips the switch, he's just acidic. He's evil. Douglas Feldman was a very, very bad player. He liked to upset the other inmates. He whistled. If he's not eating... If he's not sleeping, he whistled. If he found out it bothered someone, he whistled more. Take him to the shower, and he would quite often defecate and leave that shower situation for someone else. And I, what I want to explain here is that on Texas death row, they're locked in individual cells for, what, 23 hours out of the day. Essentially, yes. And uh, it's close quarters, and everything echoes. So... What would that whistling effect have, and what did inmates say about it? Drive people mad. Uh, there, there were individuals that would love to have gotten to him. If there had been some sort of, if there's a switch there, and I don't know if there is, if, it, if someone had hit a switch and every door had been opened, the state of Texas would not have been able to execute Douglas Feldman. The inmates would have taken care of him. And I know he set a record for the number of infractions and stuff on death row. It was constant. Did you ever get a sense of, of why? Are you, are you able to get your head wrapped around it? I sure couldn't. He seemed to enjoy making others miserable. That seemed to be his modus. I don't understand that. And I'll tell you, you're saying you don't understand these things. I'll tell you what an old warden told me one time. Old hardened man came up as a guard. And, you know, after 40-something years, I think he was in the system. I was lamenting one day, I don't understand. Someone had done something bad. And I said, I don't understand it. And this old warden popped me on the back and he said, son, you'd be glad you don't understand it. If you understood it, you would be one of them. It made a lot of sense to me. Makes a lot of sense. I want to back up, though. You mentioned earlier you started off in the prison visitation with death notices. Yeah. So you're having to tell inmates that they've lost a family member. That must have been the 
hardest thing ever. Well, the chaplain. They, they are yeah. passionate about their families. And I'm in Arkansas, and the chaplain, uh, I hate to say this, but he was a bit of a lazy man. He gave me an office immediately, and uh, when I was there, he knew when I was coming, he would save the death notices, some of them from the day before. And I would have a little stack of them, not not too many a day, but quite often uh, more than one. And so we would call the inmate down. They would sit down, they're shackled, and they know something's up. And then I, how do you break that? You just say it. Then you deal with the anger, the tears. Uh, I've had men fall on the floor and just uh, scream. I think I told you about a child uh, or a young man that was uh, within a year of getting out of the prison. He had twin sons, and uh, we called him down. And what we had found out is that the dishwasher was open, and his wife was loading the dishwasher, and the steak knives were, you know, the point up. And the kids are doing what kids do. They horseplay. And one of the children fell and uh, fell on the knife and uh, didn't recover from that. And I had to tell that man, and, you know, that's of all the things I've seen, that's one of the most haunting things it troubles me as a parent, a grandparent, and the, I can still hear that man crying. I can still hear him just a guttural scream, if you will. And he was excited about going home within a year, and now he knew that things will never be the same. Back to death row and the people you encountered there. Now, you know, an earlier podcast, which I would suggest our new listeners go back and listen to, is about the serial killer, Kenneth McDuff, here in Texas, and then we've done the uh, a television documentary called Freed to Kill about him, and you're aware of him. But you, you knew of him on death row. What was your impression there? Well, he was very hated. Uh, the inmates said because he was you know, all the publicity that he makes the stereotype of the death row inmate look like they've got blood hanging off their lips. And uh, they hated him. He was obnoxious. Uh, you know, if you could ever say a man... If you can say something good about Kenneth McDuff, it was that he was consistent, and that's it. But he was consistently evil. I have a minister friend who I would say is a very gullible person, and I asked them, I said, uh, you know, you visited McDuff. Tell me, did you find anything good in Kenneth McDuff? And this person sighed and sort of looked away in kind of a far stare and said, you know, occasionally in life you're going to meet someone that there's absolutely nothing good within them. And that was Kenneth McDuff. Did you ever have an inmate, since you were visiting all of them, confess at the, at the end as they were facing? One of the most rewarding things in life, and I've had several things that I say are rewarding, but one of the most rewarding things was in March of uh, 2009. I was with a man from Bear County, Luis Salazar, and we were talking about, I guess, hour and a half, maybe two hours away from his execution. And I, I sensed there was unsettled business. And I said, Luis, uh, why do I feel we're unfinished here? And he said, well, I've killed some more people. And he told me about uh, shooting someone that was in a car. And then he told me about going to a convenience store and uh, had, a, had a, the attendant, a little 19-year-old girl, back in the beer refrigerator, and someone came into the store, and she began to scream, and so he ended her life in a very, very horrific fashion, multiple stab wounds. And he told me about that, and, you know, he had so much detail that I believed him. I said, you know, this is real. So 
I asked Rank, I said, I've got to talk to someone. This is, I can't, he can't leave me with this. Someone's got to know about this. Because he had asked me, once I'm executed, call the uh, police department in Bear County and tell them about this. I said, man, you can't leave me with this. So I went to the warden, and the warden thought, well, he's playing a game. He wants to stay. But he didn't want to stay. He just wanted to get right with, uh, with his maker, with, with God. And so they called a Texas Ranger. He came out, took my information, and he said, listen, you've got a rapport with this guy. Let's go back there, and you introduce him to me, and, and hopefully he'll talk to me. And we did just that, and uh, they recorded it. Uh, he wrote down some notes. I stood back about six feet. I don't know exactly what was said. As we walked back, the ranger said, this is real. This is real. He told me, you don't say a thing about this, and uh, I'll let you know what happens. And so about three weeks later, I get this call. Do you have Internet service? I said, yes. Well, this afternoon, there's going to be a police conference with the uh, San Antonio City Police and the, the family of this, this young girl, we found out. Her name was Melissa Morales, and 19 years of age. You know, she's just out working, trying to make money, a good kid. And her life is taken by someone, a random stranger that she never did anything to, for a case of beer. And, you know, that was just disgusting on so many levels. But the family, and it lacked three weeks being a 17-year-old cold case. It was Easter night that she was killed, and it didn't bring their baby back. And you and I have talked about the joke of the word closure. Closure would be if we could bring their daughter back. But it did help the family. The knowing helped the family. They said it helped them. And I had a little part in that. I, I don't take any credit because I didn't do anything. I guess I was in the right place at the right time, and I asked the right question. But it was very rewarding to me. Why do you think he didn't take it to his death? Some do. Many do. You know, I think there was a, I think there was a fear of God. We talked about judgment, the scripture saying that it is appointed to a man to die once and then the judgment. I read that scripture somewhere in the process of the execution or somewhere before. I read that to each inmate. I said, listen, you've got a date, but you have a final destination. You'll stand before God and you won't have your appellate lawyers and you're going to give an accounting and uh, you need to throw that up. You need to repent. So there was an, uh, we have Macduff, and there was another notorious Mac that was executed shortly after him. He was executed, uh, I believe it was 10, 11 months afterward. Uh, Jerry Animal McFadden, uh, it, it's personal to me because it was in my part of the, you know, the neighborhood where I grew up, Upshur County. And uh, I knew one of the victim's dads. Uh, Mr. Turner was a, uh, I worked at a gas station as a kid, and he came in. He's everything a man should be. He's humble toward his God, a great provider for his family, just a great, wholesome, wonderful man. And he lost his baby girl. You know, these three names, uh, we bring the names of the inmates up. If, you, if you'll just let me please say Suzanne Harrison, Gina Turner, and Brian Boone, and they mattered. The state of Texas let this man out repeatedly. If he had just served his original prison sentence, he would not have been the in the place where he could have taken these children's lives. The victims are often forgotten, and I'm glad you said that because we know the, the killer's names. We never really hear about the victims. 
But we saw this in the McDuff case. We've seen it in many other cases that like, you had them. You could have spared so much, saved so many lives if you just kept them behind bars. And to this day, I still feel there's a huge weakness in the parole system. That I don't think there's not any sort of even a basic scientific psychological way of looking at people and deciding are they get out. What's your sense if you were sitting there making the decision? Well, uh, that's a good question to answer. And maybe someone's going to say I'm overly harsh, but I'll put my 39 years of experience to them on the outside. First of all, I would never let a pedophile out. In 39 years, I've seen those who say they come to the Lord, and maybe they have, but you can serve God within the confines of concrete. I would never take a chance on taking a pedophile and giving them parole. Anyone with a, actually any sexual crime, I don't think I would ever let them out. I would not want that on me. And uh, maybe I'm saying, uh, what I'm saying sounds harsh or I sound jaded, but my 39 years have not led me to believe that I would take a chance on any one of these people. Doesn't mean I can't minister to them. And of course, when I talk to men, I'm better off when I don't know their crime because I have a human side. I've got children, I've got grandkids, and, you know, that connects there with children. I mean, you hurt a child, and please tell me what's worse. I don't know what is. But I have seen me, and I think they're sincere, but they can serve God in the confines. I would never let them out. Never. You know, I knew Roy Hazelwood, one of the original FBI profilers who specialized in sex crimes. And I mean, he was the authority, and he helped me on the McDuff case and all. But I do remember Roy telling me once that one of the most powerful urges is sex. And if you get sex combined with, a th- with murder and suffering, you can't turn it off. Can't don't let them out. What did you see around that? Well, I, I think I told you the most horrendous story. There's an inmate in Louisiana. I believe he's still in northwest Louisiana at a maximum security prison. I had dealings with him quite often. Well, he was not even allowed to receive or be around the Sunday paper. You know, the sale paper. You have the advertisements. You have children in swimming attire and underwear. And he got joy and gloated, I guess maybe even drooled over those children. And then when he got all that he could get out of that, he would he would remove the heads from the different bodies and interchange them with the other outlines, the other picture, and just start all over again. And the last I heard, he had a uh, he was going to get out. He was going to spend his time and and not owe the state anything else. And it would not be if, but when he reoffends. There's no doubt in my mind. That's uh, You go to Vegas and play the odds on that, it's 100%. He's going to reoffend if he's allowed to get out. In your ministry, what did you see that parole board members and people making decisions about letting people out should see? Well, the first problem is you should not give jobs to friends that are simply friends. If, if I can say on a personal level, in Louisiana a few years ago, there was a man who killed a woman, tied her to a tree, raped her, strangled her. He was a soldier at Fort Polk. It went unsolved for many, many years, and now he's in prison. And they had this deal where he, if you're a certain age and have spent a certain amount of time, it's, it's a formula. They'll let you out. Uh, they don't have to let you out, but, you know, you come up. Now, look at the parole board over there, and I don't mean to demean anyone's vocation, 
But what does a librarian know about criminals? A librarian, the friends of the governor were put there, and they were going to let this guy out. Somehow the mother, she was not notified. She lives in Illinois, and she paid her ticket, and her family came down, and they beat the drums and made the governor look bad. And so all of that got pulled back, and whatever was done in the shadows, the man did not get out. And I think he needs to die. There was a very violent, sick crime, and I believe because he was out for a number of years, I believe there are the victims. Did you encounter some inmates that you thought were re- remaking their well, life? I did. Alvin Kelly, I had uh, contact with him. Uh, he was an older man. I'll tell you something he told me. He said, I didn't do this murder. He said, I, I didn't do it. And a child was involved in it. He said, I would never hurt a child. He said, but I did kill someone years before this murder. And he said, I'm good with them executing me. They're just killing me for the wrong crime. He said, but I'm good with it. And he was sort of the boss man. He was an older man, big, uh, stocky man. And they had Bible studies in the back. And I remember one man disrespecting another man, had some racial terms. And uh, Alvin brought it up for a vote with, the, with his neighbors. He said, OK, uh, this guy's out of order. I say until he apologizes, no one talk to him, no one have fellowship with him, and no one share any food or commissary. They took the vote, and uh, he, you know, he was out for six weeks. The guy did apologize. I don't know how sincere it was, and was brought back into the fold. And Alan just was, or Alvin was a heavy. He just, uh, but he lived a life, and I watched him live it for a number of years. You know, somebody comes to the Lord, and even in the church, when someone comes to the Lord, I'm, you know, I see people celebrating and they're enthusiastic about it. Maybe it's just me, but I, I want to say, with can I just hold on to my shout? Can I hold on to my joy? And I want to see what happens in six months. And I watched Alvin for years, and I believe he was very instrumental. I still run into people, and I'll say, well, where did you come to the faith? Alvin Kelly. Alvin Kelly. Over and over, I hear his name, and he's he's been dead for several years now. Rolando Ruiz, who was a contract killer that uh, killed a lady for an you know the husband who was one of the Texas Seven, uh, he got life for that sentence, and then later you know as he broke out, uh, Rodriguez he received death. Well, Ruiz is a young man, he's a gang member, he's paid I don't know what he was paid, and he goes out and he kills this lady. He came in, he had dark eyes, he had hate. He was just mad at the world. You look at him, he just, uh, what are you looking at? That kind of attitude. And uh, the Lord began to work with him. I didn't know him in the early days. And a lady called me. She said, listen, I'm over, I'm as far as I can go with my faith. I don't know what I need to know. And so would you see a man? Would you, well, there it goes. You know, she's not a mother, but she says, would you see this man? So, sure. I went to see him, and he had just a list of questions. And I began to disciple him. And, you know, as I said, I reserved my shout. I watched him for a number of years. I know he took a, a booklet that I gave him. He memorized the, the heading, the, you know, the outline, and he would share that with men when he would go outside with, as they do wreck in a, in a separate, you know, fencing. And I saw him. And I can, tr- I believe with all my heart that the man that went into prison is not the man who left this life. 
Now, I wish I could say that there are more. Some of the inmates, the inmates say, play me. I know, I'm, I know I'm being played. But you know what? If I do what I'm supposed to do, and I'm sincere in my heart, it's on them. You know, if I'm played, I'm played. Uh, I do think I have, uh, after all these years, I do have what I call a good crapometer. And sometimes I tell them it's, I've got this, this apparatus in my pocket, and I've got it on vibrate, and it's dancing in my pocket. And they'll ask me, well, what, what is it? And I said, it's a crapometer. And so, but I do believe that some of these men change. We talked about Feldman and McDuff. Were there others that just struck you as just pure, unadulterated evil? Like, oh, my God. Well, certainly there were. I was thinking in terms of if you had the most likely to succeed or the least liked, mm-hmm. a couple of arrogant men. They, uh, both of them, their egos were so large, I believe that they could have been assigned a zip code. Now, both of them have been executed, and I promise you, none of the men wept for them. One of them was uh, in your area here. Uh, they called him Batman, John Battaglia. And you know the crime he— We'll he, tell our listeners, yes, Well, he, uh, he and his wife were in a custody dispute. He called his wife, and he killed his children, and his wife listened to it. And the little girl cried out. One of the girls, don't, you know, Daddy, don't. And she heard the gunshots. He had no conscience. He, he, was, he was just evil. Some want to say he was mentally ill, but no, he knew what he was doing. Very arrogant. I don't know an officer that liked him. I don't know an inmate that liked him. I don't know a minister that liked him. You know, we were duty-bound. You go talk to him, it's because you feel like you're called and you're duty-bound. But on a personal level, he's not a man that you would like. And then, of course, the other one has recently been executed, uh, Bob Fratta out of Harris County. Same way. He talked down to people. He was very arrogant. It all came back to him, any conversation. And uh, they're not missed. They're not missed. And those are the earmarks of a psychopath. Yes, they yes. are. We're going to pause for a moment. When we come back, I want to talk to you about witnessing executions. We're talking with Reverend Wayne Whiteside, who has witnessed 30 executions, and you've been in the death chamber for one. You know, the I've always I've been there. I didn't witness, but I've been there in the holding cells and all before. And I can see the walk from the cell to the uh, the gurney and they all seem to walk it. You know, you don't you don't have to haul them down there kicking and screaming. What is it about that? They've had a lot of time to think about this. They have resigned. You know, there have been those. uh, I don't know who they are. I didn't see any of that. I do remember hearing, but, you know, 400 plus, 500 plus executions, wherever Texas is, I can only think of about three. But they have uh, surrendered to their fate, and they want to be, if it gets out, they want to be known to the other men as men. They want to be able to say, you know, them think they had their head up. They were not afraid. And so I believe that plays into that. So you you did one execution in Texas where you're present in the death chamber. Yes. Would you describe, uh, and it's something, you know, the normal member of the public would never see. It's very few people ever witness this. Well, How I, is this done? I'm prohibited from that. You know, uh, 
the system has, uh, you know, with the security, uh, certainly can't give you the background of that. I prayed a very short prayer. I had my hand on the inmate's uh, foot. He kind of had a, a little bit of a nervous shake. And as he was dying, you could just sort of feel that shake go out of his body. Uh, I will say in the 29 executions, standing about anywhere from, depending on the state, two to five feet away, it was like having never been to an execution. It was uh, it was a little too up close and too real. And, you know, I know these guys. I'm not going to minimize what the state chaplains do, mm-hmm. but when they come over there, they've met them a day or two before. Right. You know, some of these guys, I've known them for as, as long as 18 years. I know their families. I know them. They have shared their inner fears. Uh, you know, I know them. You know, they're not a number. You know, I, tr- I have to separate it from a call. But, yes, some of these men, uh, several of them had gotten under my skin, so to speak. And I look at uh, two or three of them I'm thinking of and have thought about and reflected in the last couple of days. They are more like my children. Did you ever, because the, you know, there's two different windows, the inmates, families, or representatives are watching from one window, and across is, are the families of the victims. Do you ever have occasion to talk with them? No, we are strictly prohibited from that. Uh, that's a good thing. And, uh, you know, I, I hurt so bad for them. But when I began to, when I've committed to walk with a man on an individual basis, one of the little sermons or the lessons I have is forget not the victim. Forget not the victim. We're not here. We're not having an execution, whether you believe it's right or wrong, if you didn't do what you did. And someone's hurting. I, I didn't tell you this. I'm on the other side of the coin. I was a pastor uh, where I, I've been 25 years where I'm at now, but uh, February 96. I got a phone call, my previous pastorate, to go check on an elderly couple. And so I make my way down there. And then, long story short, I get a neighbor. We get a flashlight, and we find this elderly couple. They were murdered. And uh, I did testify in that uh, murder case. Uh, he, all, he came close to getting the death penalty. It was 11 to 1 for his conviction. He got two life sentences, and they are consecutive. They're stacked. This young man was 18 years old, but he was a predator. He's been a problem since he's been in Angola, and I know a little bit about that. I'm forbidden to see him. But, you know, I've seen the fingerprints of Satan. Uh, You know, this guy killed those people three ways. He bludgeoned them. He poured uh, charcoal lighter fluid down their throats, and then he cut their throats. And uh, that forget not the victim. I tell inmates this story. I have seen up close a slaughter. I have, uh, I'm real good friends with, there's six children that lost their parents. One I'm especially close to, and uh, what's the little girls? Their girl, girls grow up and be married. And one of the little girls just, I think it was a couple of years ago, ran into her. And she said, thank you for what you've done for my family. She said, you know, I often think when I lost my grandparents, life will never be the same because I spent every summer with them, a, a few weeks, and my summers were gone. I got cheated you know, from that, and uh, I grew up afraid maybe the boogeyman or someone is, is going to come after me. And you know, it just destroys your idea that life is safe. And so that's a hard talk 
that I give to these inmates. But, you know, sometimes they complain, you know, about the food. And I say, guys, you weren't arrested for singing too loud in the choir. They're not going to put you up at a Hilton. And it sounds cruel, maybe, but I want them to take responsibility. I want to see remorse. And I don't believe if I don't go through those steps, that process, that I have done a justice to them. And so I tell you, we, we, have the hard, we have the hard talks. I've had some get mad at me and say, I don't want to see you again. Do they ask you what your stand is on the death penalty? Some have. You know, that's interesting. I think, um, I think they probably assume that I am 100% against the death penalty because I'm visiting them. I try to stay out of it. I have friends on one poll that says we ought to execute them all. Let's do it tomorrow. And then I have friends that say under no circumstances should we execute. So I try to walk through that uh, that landmine, if you will, because I'm trying to be able to talk to all, both sides, about Christ. Well, you're walking through the valley of evil. And, you know, I, I think in contrast, I think of, the beauty inside St. Peter's in Rome, or the beauty of the art at the Louvre in Paris. And then you see the absolute darkness of man and what he can do. As a minister, how do you reconcile that? Or how do you, can you make sense of it? Of how can, how can man do such wonderful, beautiful things and then destroy? Well, I have a couple of thoughts about that. There's a verse of scripture in the Old Testament Jeremiah 17, 9, that says the heart is desperately wicked. Who can comprehend it? That's the very depths of evil. Man is a free moral agent. And that means we're not robots. We have the freedom to choose wisely or unwisely. You know, God put that in the Old Testament before the people of God. If you do this, this, and this, I'm going to bless you. If you do this, this, and this, I'm going to curse you. And one of the prophets said, choose you this day who you will serve. And, you know, we have people that have a political agenda that no one ever does any wrong, that we ought to let them all out. They're all, you know, everybody needs that second chance. But the truth is, they've not been where I've been. There are people that seem to be hell-bent on being hell-bound. They've made choices. And I tell people, your choices or what put you here? You know, I go to jails and uh, a guy walk up to me that has gotten out. He comes back in eight months. He hugs my neck. He says, man, I'm so glad to see you. I said, well, I'm not happy to see you. You're, you've got frequent flyer miles, and that means that you haven't listened to the message. You have not taken it seriously. So, you know, you live in Dallas. You, you left. You came back. You made that choice. You, you know, you made that choice. If you like it, it's Robert's. If you don't like it, it belongs to Robert. And so we make choices. And I believe that even the most uh, confined person, you, you, you're reading the Bible about this uh, guy that had mental illness. He was uh, demonized. Uh, he lived in a cemetery. They couldn't keep clothing on him. He cut himself on the stones. It says they tried to fetter him. They couldn't even keep handcuffs on him. Superhuman strength. Well, Christ came to him, and he had the free will, as messed up as he was, he had the free will to walk up 
to Christ. And so I don't believe that you ever get to that place where you totally 100% don't have some free will to make a decision that will change your life. How do you explain that to inmates of the Muslim faith or Jewish faith? Well, uh, now you're going to ask for one of my uh, arrows in my box. Uh, An old minister, I'll tell you, there's two types of Islam. You've got the Islam that out of the Middle East, and then Islam in the prison almost becomes a constitutionally protected gang. You know, you can't be a blood or a crip, at least you can't wear things. But you can say you identify as a Muslim, and a lot of times those guys don't have a clue what they believe. There, there's one man in point. Uh, he registered as a, a Muslim. He, he visited me. I went down to the prison, and he said, I can't talk to you anymore. I'm a Muslim. I said, oh, okay, when did that happen? He said, well, a few weeks ago. Well, he declared to the prison, I'm a Muslim. So they change everything in the computer, and he gets a Muslim diet. Well, not very often, but they got a pork chop one day. He smells it. He said, what's that? Where's my pork chop? You can't have a pork chop. You're a Muslim. Well, so the next time I make it down to the prison, he said, hey, I want to talk to you. I'm no longer a Muslim. So what do you mean? He says, no one's taking my pork chop. And so, you know, that wasn't a faith thing. That was an identification thing. And so I'm always going to be respectful. I'm always going to be kind. And again, I go back, I build a bridge. I've not had success, Mr. Riggs, by getting up in someone's face and said, let me tell you the truth. You're going to bust tail wide open. I gave you a case in point. It was a gangster down in Texas. He'd been executed. And he was a hard, hard guy. And he's get away from me. Just get away from me. And I said, okay, that's okay. I said, surely you have something that I could pray about for you. He said, well, I guess prayer won't hurt anything. So he tells me two or three things. One of the things he tells me are the name of his children. Well, I go back to Louisiana. I come back four to six weeks later. I run into him. And I said, how? And I call the names of his kids. He said, you remembered my children's names. I said, well, yeah, I wrote it in this book, and I told you I was going to pray for him. That broke a wall down, and that began a relationship that was able to walk across that bridge. He trusted me. He said, hey, this, this guy really cares. And so you've got to show someone you care. And I really try to be fair about that. When I go cell to cell, the guys have to clock on me sometimes. I walked up to a guy in Arkansas, and he and I, I said, I want to, let's have prayer, and I'll go to the next guy. And he said, wait a minute. You, you just gave me 11 minutes. You gave the guy down the, you know, down the uh, three or four cells. He got 17 minutes. So they've got their clock on me. And even the, the Muslims, that don't, they'll say, get away from my cell. But I tell them, guys, I'm still going to talk to you because the first time I walk by and don't say hello, you're going to say, see what that guy did? So I'm going to speak to you. You tell me to get away, that's good. But I'm still going to speak, and, you know, you're just going to have to deal with that. With the use of DNA, of course, we have found people innocently sent to death row. Have you run into that? No. The two cases that I am aware of, uh, Ernest Willis, uh, the science caught up with it. It was a fire. It uh, did not happen the way they thought it would happen. He was a a worker, a construction worker in West Texas. He and his friend, I think a cousin, met some 
ladies at a bar. They went back to wherever they were being housed, and a, there was a fire, and the girls lost their lives. It was a, as Ernest used to tell me, it was a perfect crap storm. He was in the wrong place with the wrong people at the wrong time. He ended up on death row. I think he came within 48 hours of being executed. But uh, the science, the, the fire science uh, down at A&M caught up with it. And uh, they, someone looked at this. Someone said, hey, that's not how it happened. It could not have happened that way. He spent 12 years on death row and actual innocence. And then there's Anthony Graves. Uh, everyone seems well, then, to— Didn't he tell you that what his goal in life uh, was after getting out? Yeah. Ernest, Ernest was not a—you know, you tell him a joke, and uh, you'd say, Ernest, did you get the joke? Yeah, I got it. It, it, it. Well, Ernest, it wasn't funny to you, so I'm dying inside. Ernest looked like a basset hound. He had his jowls fell off his uh, jawbones, you know, and sad-looking guy. He got up to about 350 pounds. He's a big man. But he told me the state was going to pay him about 300000 plus. And he, I said, Ernest, what are you going to do with all that money? He said, I'm going to move to Mississippi. I'm going to buy me a house that's got a porch. I'm going to pay for it. I'm going to have a, a mortgage. I'm going to buy a new truck. I'm going to pay for it. And I'm going to get good coffee. And I'm going to get all the cigarettes I can smoke. And I'm going to sit on that porch. And I'm just going to enjoy my coffee and cigarettes. And if a breeze comes by, that's good, too. In closing here, after everything you've seen, I mean, what's, what are your observations about the choices people make? Well, some people make good choices and some people make bad choices. But your choices take you where you are. At the end of the day, I'm not accountable for Robert Riggs, but Robert Riggs is not accountable for me. We will give that at final judgment, and we are who we are, or we are who we've wanted to become. Now, I know I don't think everyone's created equal. I know that that we talk about that in America. You know, there are people with low IQs. Uh, there are people, you know, who squandered their talents. Uh, but we make choices. And, uh, you know, it seems like that's a hard, hard message in today's society. I get guys that want to play the victim. I I'm thinking about a guy now that, you know, his mother sent him to his room. She spanked him. And he, if he, she had done this different or this different, he wouldn't be who he is. Well, there's no perfect parent. And there's no perfect childhood. But we are who we are because we've made choices. With your experience with seeing the kind of crimes that were committed, like the little girl, the 19-year-old girl in a convenience store stabbed, is there any advice for the unsuspecting public, the unsuspecting person walking through the parking lot with their groceries? Well, most of the people that are incarcerated are going to get out. We, we it's more sensational, I guess. People want to talk about death row, but, you know, death row is a small part of what I do. I mean, uh, you've got to be hit by lightning to get the death penalty. And there are people who uh, their jury locked up at 11-1 or 10-2. You know, in Florida, that terrible injustice of that school shooting, I think there was one juror that was the holdout. And so most of the people in prison are going to get out. And, you know, I, I, I was having rehab recently, a little sweet young girl right out of college, idealistic. And uh, she, she's helping me with a, a hamstring tear. And uh, we're just talking about life. She's right out of college. She's 24 years old. Sweet, sweet child. 
And she's from South Louisiana. She's in North Louisiana trying to, you know, make it on her own, be independent. And somewhere in that conversation, she told me, you know, I, I went out last night and I, you know, almost on empty. So I got gas at 10 p.m. And I just I said, what? Because the way I think I said, that's a no, no. She's oh, you sound like my mama. So well, your mama's got good sense. I tell my the ladies in my family, nothing good happens from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. And so you lower your chances. You play if you play the odds, you lower your chances by not going out and not going certain places. You know, parking. Uh, and if you're scared, trust your gut. Ask someone from the store, or or find a a, a you know a big bubba or or a redneck that's walking around. He'll help you. He's a, they're always decent people. And say, would you walk to my car with me? And so these people are hunters. I think you've said that in previous podcasts. They are hunters. It's like uh, you work a job at eight hours. Some of these people hunt. And, you know, we say McDuff is deceased. He'll never hurt anyone. There are other McDuffs out there. We just haven't. uh, They haven't begun their uh, killing or we haven't caught them. Uh, So I'm not trying to make people fearful, but live with your eyes open. Please live with your eyes open. You can lower the odds of being hurt. That's our last word, Pastor Wayne Whiteside. Thank you. Pastor Whiteside has shared some photographs from death row of the inmates that we talked about in this episode. Some of you are probably curious about what Jerry the Animal McFadden looks like and as well as others. I have posted these photos on our website, truecrimereporter.com, in the episode titled, Inside the Minds of Death Row Inmates, A Terrifying Journey into Evil. True Crime Reporter is written by me, Robert Riggs. It is produced and researched by Siler Burr. You can read more about our team on our website at truecrimereporter.com. And while you're there, please sign up to join our true crime community. It's free. There's a red box on every page to receive our free email updates with behind-the-scenes information. And you can email your suggestions to fan at truecrimereporter.com. I read all of them. This podcast is a trademarked and copyrighted news organization based in Dallas, Texas. Thanks for listening to our Journey into Darkness.